Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 156. So to kick it off this week, that wagon chime module, I actually plugged it into the wagon over the weekend and lo and behold, it works. Yay. Yeah. Like no issues, just fires right up. Yeah, it, it just beeps like crazy now. Now it's like, I should just remove it because it's annoying. <laughs> I was just about to say like, wait, why did you put it back in? <laughs> I still haven't, you know, broken down and made a schematic for it yet, but at least it it like works inside there now. So I'm going to pull it out and draw up a schematic for it. And I kind of want to know how it's, because it's got some digital logic in there that's probably playing like if these switchers are high and these are low, play this chime. Uh, that's probably what it's using those these those uh NOR gates. You sure? For. You sure it's not just like uh, an analog implementation that just is all like timing and stuff? No, it has that. But I'm talking about like what circuits for the oscillator to trigger. You but it but doesn't it play the exact same pitch every time? No, it has that. It has that continuous tone and then it has the bong 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 they're the same <laughs> pitch so there's probably one oscillator that is this that, that's the output of, for the speaker that's one continuous tone and then that has like an enable line that's also on a trigger either continuously on or it you know goes up and down i you know with the age of that thing i would not be surprised if it's that's an analog implementation uh, where it doesn't have a digital thing going on. If it has like a, a VCA and uh, voltage-controlled amplifier and it's it's just enveloping based off of what pins are high or low. I mean, it's it's uh, in other words, I'm thinking like a, an a analog implementation of a digital thing. In other words, not like a processor that's making decisions. Yeah, so we'll ha- I'll have to pin it out um, today so or after this podcast, so. Cool. Yeah, and then... Um I've been working. I don't know if we talked about this last time. I think I had it on my list and we ended up skipping it. It's the USB Type C article I've been working on. Yeah, you mentioned that in the uh, Slack uh, channel last week. Yeah, the I have an implementation for doing USB 2.0 with a Type C connector to like an FT230X, which is basically a you know UART a USB UART bridge. And so I finished that implementation, and I created a design blocking eagle so anyone can kind of just grab it and just plop it down. And it has everything routed out already, too. It's like it's like the, the maker block for USB. Yes. Yeah, so it's a, it's a building Lego block, as you can say, for a USB interface for to talk to a microcontroller. Um, the only thing I don't know I want to do yet is if I want to put ESD protection on the configure pins. Um, the CC pins, because they're they're both tied together at the connector, and then those go through a 5.1K resistor to ground. And so that's that's like a lot of resistance there. It's like, does it need a ESD TVS? Uh, I mean, what what for, though? Well, an, an ESD event would hit the connector. It could hit that CC pin, and then now you got only 5.1 kilo-ohms to ground impeding you at that point. Yeah, so so if 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 there's like a ten kilovolt spike or something like that, yeah, is there enough? I don't know if there's enough energy in an ESD event to like basically shunt through that resistor and then you know affect your ground plane. Basically, mm, got to go back to calculating joules. Yeah, I guess I need to figure that out. If someone in Slack knows, let me know. Um, 
I mean, it wouldn't. It, it, it can't hurt, right? It just no. Adds, it can't hurt. It's it just, adds bomb cost and space. yeah, it adds a little bit of tiny bomb cost. And I can't use like this is but my idea for this article is like I have a USB 2.0 design that uses a micro or mini USB connector. I want to go to Type C. What is the minimal I need to do to do it? Oh well, if you say minimal, then don't. <laughs> <laughs> so. But but you do have ESD protection on the data lines, right? Yes, there is there is ESD protection there. I I've, I've uh, what chip is that actually? Is it is it one of those uh, six pin jobbies? Yeah, it's a little six pin guy. That uh, actually the cool thing is it has a clamp on the voltage line. It's not as low as I'd like, but at least it prevents a mostly catastrophic you know voltage event over voltage event. <laughs> sure. Um, I am looking. I don't have it ready right now. You know, I think I think I've I've even implemented back in my macrofab days. Uh, I I used your design block. It wasn't a design block at the time. You just kind of gave me your USB circuit, and I just implemented it in a handful of things. It works great. It was nice because it was just like, okay, someone's done the work for me. Drop yeah. it in. Uh, the ESD part I like to use for USB 2.0 is IP4234 CZ6 comma. One two five, I think the comma one two five is like the package designation, but yeah, <laughs> that's what, that the one, that part's gotten me through lots of CE and FCC testing. <laughs> oh yeah, just slap that on the front. Actually, you yeah. know that's a that's an interesting thing for your design. Um, you does will this design pass? Sure. <laughs> it depends on what else is connected to, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but this like design block, is it is it you know? It's it, I mean obviously you probably designed it with that in mind. Correct. Yeah, it has the ESC protection and the clamps on ground and the po power rail coming in. Um, that's the only thing is like, is a five point one kilo ohm resistor one robust enough and two is it going to snub enough? of the current off of like an ESD event. If it hit that pin, um, I might just have to put a standalone, you know, little TVS ESD resist, uh, diode there. We'll see if anyone argues for it on N Slack. <laughs> um, and the cool <laughs> thing with this, this layout I did, I put like test points everywhere. So you can actually like test stuff. That's cool. But you can easily delete them. Basically just delete them in your, uh, off the schematic and it will remove them from, the uh the the uh layout it'll automatically remove from them from the design block uh well yeah when you when you drop it into your your design so so when you actually click the delete key on the schematic side w does it disappear on the pcb side yes oh that's cool yeah i mean that sounds dangerous but that's cool <laughs> it can be the best is when you like you accidentally delete something and put it back in um, if you put a new part back in there, it's going to be in a completely different spot on your board now. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's funny. I was trolling the, um, or lurking on the dip trace forums, uh, earlier and, uh, I was looking at some feature requests and, uh, one of the things that dip trace does when you, when you're done with your schematic, you have your schematic, like exactly perfect, all your package definitions and everything, and you're ready to hop over the wall and go to layout, mm -hmm. uh, you can there's just a keystroke and it takes you right into layout it loads the program and what it does is it just gives you 
a blank screen and it just craps out all your components everywhere. That, that's what Eagle does, yeah. And and it just it just literally spits them everywhere. And the thing is that one of the fundamental differences between Dip Trace and Eagle is Dip uh, Eagle has the two the schematic and the layout linked whereas dip trace they're not linked you uh you link also oh, you create a netlist and that barfs into your layout tool right and then the schematic is is nothing after that uh, well i shouldn't say nothing but but if you ever wanted to link them again it's a manual operation that you have to do every time so you can get them out of sync if you choose to, or you can bring them back into sync if you choose to. But so the thing is, like, if you select something in your schematic, it will not select in your layout. Gotcha. So the thing is, like, and and one of the guys on the forum, what he was bringing up as a kind of an interesting thing, he he makes these really large scale designs with that have multiple pages, and what he wants to do is be able to say like. I want to select all the components on a single page in my schematic and group those and have them somewhere mm -hmm. uh, on the on the layout. And it was funny because this is so, I don't know, such a hacky workaround. Somebody suggested that he has like a safe copy of his schematic. And what he could do is just delete everything but the page he wants on his schematic and then load that into his PCB. Oh, and it would just dump those and then parts. It, and then it's only those components, and then lock those components, and then undo changes on the schematic side, and do that page by page, bring in just those components and lock them, and I don't know. That sounds like such a, a terrible way of That sounds it. really a terrible workflow. Yeah, it's it's awful. So I actually just came up with a cool idea, because uh, that's what, when you, when you click make PCB or when you go to the board editor and Eagle, it just barfs all the parts. It tries to <laughs> yeah. like organize it organizes them by when you put them on the schematic. Oh, uh, okay. And so like the first part you put on schematic is going to be like at zero zero location and then it just goes straight down. Right. Oh, geez. It has this weird like. Wait, wait. What if you have like 3000 components? It'll just be a line of 3000 components more or less. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds terrible. And I actually thought of a really cool idea is what if you you could do that operation, but then it put all the parts how they are in your schematic. So make it make it look like a schematic. So the relative positions Yeah, the relative positions are how they showed on the schematic. Now that doesn't help you like in routing or anything, but at least like because I like to have the schematic open on one page as I'm doing the routing on the other page. And so I can like, okay, I'm this this op amp needs R13, R8, and C14. I go ahead and group all those. That's the first thing I do is like group all the parts together. Like yeah, that's what these I do need too. to be together. These bypass capacitors go to these parts. Uh and it'd be nice if when it, Eagle would just automatically would do that. Yeah, yeah. Or any EDA tool would automatically do that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, let me ask you this: this is this is something that I'm actually really anal about, and I I like doing. Um, it, let's say I put a bypass cap on an op amp. Uh, so so the way I design op amps, uh, and and this is all the default in DipTrace. You have the you have the schematic symbol for the op amp, however many op amps are in a package, mm -hmm. and then there's there's an, another schematic symbol that is power V plus and V minus. Okay. So that that can be placed anywhere on your schematic. It, it's not directly connected to the op amp, and it makes for things to be a whole hell of a lot cleaner when you do mm -hmm. that. That way, you don't have to search for the one 
schematic symbol that has power and ground. Like you can, if you see like U2 is two op amps yeah, and yeah, a power yeah. and ground thing. Yeah. So the thing is, here's the part where I get anal. If I, if I put a bypass or two bypass caps on the power and it's like C8 and C50 and those are connected to that op amp. When I lay it out, I put C8 and C50 on that op amp. Yeah, even though even though they're bypass, they could go on any of the other bypass ones. It doesn't matter. I make sure that my layout matches my schematic exactly. And I that's never been a problem where like, you know, I didn't know which one was which because if you look at a bypass cap, typically it's connected to some power rail and ground. So it doesn't matter if that bypass cap was on a different op amp. It's still the function is still the same, but I make sure that the layout is exactly like the schematic. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. I'll make sure if I'll, I'll I group my bypass caps with the chip on the schematic. Yeah, and so I'm like, okay, this one gets this one, and it's not for like it just makes it easier when you're reading the schematic later, like a couple years later, and you're like, oh, what is C12? It's by this part. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because because yeah, if you had a if you had a bypass cap that on the schematic was connected to an op amp. But then you laid it out where that bypass cap was on a processor somewhere else. Once again, that could function, but it'd be really confusing. Yes. I try to avoid that as much as possible. Yeah, just minimizing confusion. So. But that's all part of like when you barf all the components in and you're doing all the uh, uh, grouping of sub-circuits and things like that. That's all part of that. Yeah. I wonder if I could write a... I bet you I could write a ULP that does that. Well, how would, it, how would the ULP know what to group together? I, I'm thinking it doesn't like proximity. It just looks at it. Just look. No, it looks at the schematic and just pulls the coordinates for the parts, uh huh, and then replicates that in the board layout. Oh, oh, uh, going back to your idea where it's just like yeah, 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 yeah. Put yeah, because then I'm already it. grouping stuff how they should be on the schematic already. Yeah, and so I'm like just replicate that on the layout so that I have at least you know. The first hour of my board layout is already done. Well, okay, I, that sounds really useful, but what happens when you have multiple schematic symbols that are in a single package? Oh, yeah, like an op amp, like a quad op amp that's got yeah. five Yeah, you'd have multiple XY components, so you just have to have a priority. You it know? just picks the first one. Yeah, make, make it easy. You can't make <laughs> it too complicated. Yeah, it's just a grouping <laughs> algorithm, right? It actually splits all the pins out into four different parts and <laughs> spreads them out over the board. The exploded diagrams of ICs start going all over the yeah, place. Yeah, all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Actually, you know, so I would love to hear... I, I'm, I personally am not super aware how other EDA tools handle that exact same situation when you hop the wall from schematic to layout. Uh, so if anyone wants to jump on the Slack channel and let us know, like, does every EDA tool out there just go bleh when you hop that wall and just shoot the components everywhere? Or are there, like, better grouping algorithms? I don't know. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, I think it would be nice to, like, if you can, like, pick a certain section of your schematic and be like, I want to route the USB UART section today. And so it just picks those parts for you. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, and, and Eagle sort of does that, right? No. I'm saying it just barfs it a lot into the... It, it's just like dip trace. 
Well, no, but I mean, but but Eagle, at least like if you select five components in the schematic, those will be selected in the layout, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, in dip traits, I have to go and be like R17 and then flip over to the layout and be like, where's R17? And then move <laughs> it to a place and be like, that's where R17 is going to be now. Like it's it's super manual and clunky. And and I and I I heard one of the I guess I think it was on the forum um, one of the dip trace um, one of the one of their people mentioned like there's a way to pull up a list where it shows a list of every component and you can just select a component from the list but that's just a list of components like the the, the list isn't grouped it's just a different way of selecting a component like it doesn't help yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> when when I have that situation in Eagle uh, I use the I think people forget this thing exists in Eagle. Is it's just the command line that it has. So you can type in show C thirteen and it will just highlight it. And it that's super convenient. Well and 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 in DipTrace you just do control F, just do a find, find and find C thirteen. And it'll 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 center the screen on that component and you can choose the magnification level. Uh, so it'll like center and zoom in on the component, but that's still like you still have to do like a find command on every component. I guess so. Yeah. Eh, whatever. Maybe by next week I'll have this ULP, and so we can like experiment with it. Sounds like a cool little project. Easy, easy, easy win right there. <laughs> Low hanging fruit. Yes. <laughs> so Stephen, you are resurrecting your ribbon mic. Yeah, yeah. So, well, last week we had talked about, um, I was working on my uh, graphic equalizer, and um, actually, funny enough, right after we finished recording the podcast, I started feeling kind of rough, uh, and then the next two days were hell. I, I ended up getting uh, food poisoning, and I was among the dead for a couple days. Uh, so, <laughs> like, it's taken me a couple days to recover from that, because it was rough. So, I didn't really do much work on the on the equalizer like soldering didn't sound that that fun when when i have food poisoning well you can't barely move yeah exactly so uh, so i was um i was actually in my basement kind of looking through some stuff uh i think it was friday and i found that old ribbon mic that we had mentioned a few podcasts ago the 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 one that i had that you 3d printed the mm -hmm. shell for and i and i built up this ribbon mic and uh, it had always kind of been my intent to take that to the next level. And so I started playing around just with some new ideas and designs on that. And I kind of want to redo what you and I had created because that was like a that was a really fast and easy, fun project that didn't take very much effort. And we got a win out of it, you know. Yeah. And we had a really good little podcast that we recorded with that mic. Yeah. Yeah. It actually surprisingly worked OK for just being something we 3D printed, super glued together, and uh, I put a sock over it as a windscreen. Yeah, and uh, and the it transformer worked. was just gator clipped onto it. Yep, yep, and yeah, and we just gator clipped into an XLR cable. <laughs> yep, <laughs> that was episode 110, by the way. Oh, nice. Dangling yeah. transformers. Oh, and 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 we used the magnets that were part of the the mic and to just stick, like we just stuck it to the mic stand yep <laughs> and recorded that way so okay so here's what i want to do in in ribbon mic version 2.0 because we've 
we've proven the concept. What I want to do is ditch the 3D printed frame and I want to make the actual frame out of a, out of PCB material okay. and do a stack up of PCB material. Um, and a, a lot of the reasons why I want to do that is I want to embed the transformer into the design as opposed to just having it hang out. I don't want long leads from the transformer. I want the transformer to either be mounted directly to the PCB and the and the leads from the transformer are like soldered, you know, two millimeters from the PCB. Or I want to get cute with it and have, like, if you think of um, doing laminations of PCBs, like four or five uh, FR4 PCBs thick, do a silhouette cutout of the transformer and stick it in oh, be on cool. a different axis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of like fits inside so we can get an even lower profile. And make a really tight clamshell. Exactly. Well, and, and the thing is, if we if we do it that way, where we do PCB laminations, then I can potentially do some kind of interesting shielding work and have all the signals run on the internal laminations. Basically making multi-layer PCBs out of multiple PCBs yeah, yeah, yeah. in a way. So I would love to just have... The signals go directly to the transformer and have uh, have all the pads and everything that, you know, uh, sandwich the, the actual ribbon sensing element, have that all be on FR4. So effectively all we're doing is just swapping out, uh, you know, our plastic for FR4, but giving it some conductivity to allow it to, to work that way. But I also want to try because when we mentioned on um or when we were talking on the on that podcast whatever episode that was um one of the one of the issues was getting the correct tension of the ribbon and the ribbon is like i think i bought three micron thick aluminum it's not like something where you can just like manhandle it put it in there and pull it taut you know Mm -hmm. like you do that and it falls apart it like disintegrates so one of the one of the ideas that we were mentioning on that podcast was having a system where you can squish it in the PCB, uh, and then by using thumb screws you can pull the PCB and apply like fine tension uh, and fine tune the the uh, uh, I guess how much it's being pulled, mm-hmm. and that will almost guaranteed have effects on the frequency response of the mic. So I would love to like fine tune that and see like what, where our high end roll off is, or maybe we can get a different kind of response with it and things. Just stick a speaker at it and then sweep it basically. Oh, that's yeah, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, yeah. Do like a speaker, you know, with a, a specific output, uh, a specific distance away from it on, on axis. And then, uh, yeah, watch it on a scope and see what's happening. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a good idea. Yeah, that would be that would be fun. Although you'd have to make sure that the speaker is outputting a flat frequency response. Yeah, you'd have to basically see because you if you had the, you would have to you'd have to have the frequency response of the speaker and your amplifier, right? Well, and then and then basically record in with your mic and then compare the two, and the difference is what your mic is doing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, so I, I, I had a project I, I was doing a, a long time ago where I did something pretty similar to that. Uh, so Amazon, you can buy reference microphones on Amazon for actually pretty cheap, less than 100 bucks. 
And uh, the reference microphones come calibrated with a known frequency response. And they're more for acoustic testing than they are for recording because they don't mm -hmm. particularly sound well. In other words, they just don't have any character. They're super flat. So what you could do is put one of those right next to your mic and then use that to cancel out the error from what the amp is. So if the amp is rolling off, you can tell with the reference microphone, cancel that from your... You know, what your measurements are from the mic and then just get the mic. Yep. So that would be, that would be kind of fun. So, you know, the, one of the other things I want to play around with, um, so the, you know, the, the ribbon itself is a really, really low impedance. It's just a chunk of aluminum. Aluminum. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like 0.02 ohms, you know, that's your source impedance. But, uh, the voltage that comes off of it is, is tiny. Like 20, 30 microvolts is what you get, you know, yelling into this thing. So it's not particularly strong. And that's why there's a transformer in there to kind of, you know, give it a fighting chance. It boosts it up a little bit. And the transformer also works as impedance matching, you know, you, so you can match down to that 0.02 or whatever the impedance is when the thing's actually vibrating. Who knows? I don't, but one of the things I was, I was thinking of is I would love to try ditching the transformer entirely and putting a instrumentation amplifier on there and basically oh, going with yeah. like, uh, you know, basically an instant instrumentation amplifier that has like a tera ohm input impedance. It's like absolutely insane. And then applying a thousand times gain over, you know, two or three stages of uh, op amps after that, it would have to be AC coupled through this. So there's be a little bit of funkiness there, but <clears throat> If you apply a thousand times gain on a 20 or 30 microvolt signal, then you're closer to mic level that, you know, like the mics we're talking into right now. So maybe I could get away with embedding a instrumentation amplifier in this FR4 material and then making this ribbon mic work off of phantom power like uh, like a, a lot of other... I like this idea a lot. So it could be it could be pretty fun. So either have a fully passive version that has the transformer embedded in the PCB or have an instrumentation amplifier in there so it runs on phantom power. Uh, so I don't know. It, well, and, and the, the other benefit of uh, the instrumentation amplifier is you can have a super low output impedance so you could drive mm -hmm. whatever. I mean, the thing is it's going to drive an XLR cable anyway, so it doesn't matter too much. But uh, it this would be kind of fun. And honestly, like probably not going to be that difficult to uh you know design that up it, it's yeah. going to be more of like the mechanical stack up is is more difficult than the other stuff i was talking about so this reminds me of um uh brian benchoff is doing a badge a pcb badge for like defcon this year yeah and he's coined what's called the oreo pcb stack up which is kind of what you're thinking of is it two blackboards with a whiteboard in between? Uh, sure. But it's actually, um, <laughs> it's it's one PCB with the traces on it. You put your parts on it, and then you have one that's just all cutouts. Yeah. That's like the sandwich that you're talking about, and then, and then you solder one on top of that. And he actually had a pedal design on Hackaday that used that. Oh, okay. Did he? Okay, so, but the question is, did he get really, really goofy with it and via stitch around all of the pockets and make like little shield tanks for everything. I don't think he did. Basically like you know if you've ever watched like the uh 
signal analyzer teardowns that Dave Jones does where mm-hmm. he, you know, he opens up this case and you don't even see the board because there's a giant milled aluminum block and stuff. Yeah. Like it's akin to that. Right. Yeah. So if you, I, I post the link in our, our notes, um, that says Oreo stack up. Let me take a look at this. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's effectively what I'm talking about doing here. Uh, embed the transformer, but on a different axis or embed the uh, instrumentation amplifier in there. And what you know what would be what would be really cool is to find a right angle XLR connector that this could solder on the end of the PCB. Mm-hmm. And then what I would love to do is make a two a two side or a uh, a clamshell enclosure design and have the two enclosures 3D printed, and then they just come together around this stack up. Yep. Uh, so it would be really cool to 3D print it such that the base was solid, but you could have mesh, 3D printed mesh for the uh, where the ribbon is itself. Oh yeah. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder how fine you would have to make that mesh. Not very fine. It doesn't have like if you look at old ribbon mites, they're just like uh, a steel that has a bunch of holes punched in it. It doesn't. It's, it doesn't have to be super. Yeah. So three D. Yeah, three D print that, and when you put it all together, take two pieces of uh, medium density foam, put them over the ribbon itself, and then sandwich the two clamshells together, and then maybe a nut on the bottom or something like that that holds it all together, or even glue it together. So you you get the the two pieces of foam act as a, a little bit of a windscreen. Yeah. Which yeah. which it needs because if if you. If you do a P or a T into it, you can break the ribbon. Uh, <laughs> but like I don't know, like this, it, it, it sort of comes together in my mind. It's like an all-in-one little package that's pretty easy to put together, honestly. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to to this project. Yeah, and of course, I wanna I wanna Fusion 360 it. I wanna I wanna actually make it. Uh, I, in fact, I, I have in the notes one thing I haven't done with you yet or with anyone is go from Fusion 360 to 3D printing. Yeah, yeah. Which, you we know, totally there's, there's nothing particularly special about that. I mean, because uh, it's just file formats, but I would love to design it all in Fusion 360, send it to you, have you 3D print it. That would be cool. Should work. And uh, w- will you dry brush the screen silver so it looks like metal? <laughs> I can hit with some spray paint. Okay, that works. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, you know, one thing we were talking about was this uh, on that one episode when we recorded this with this mic, yeah, was the uh, PCM nine two nine one two A, which is this all in one microphone USB package. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, so this would be cool to do a a one that's USB powered uh, to make that work. Oh, you could totally do it entirely USB powered. Yeah. Because even if you gain up the the signal a thousand times, you're still like three millivolts. You know, it's yes. like yeah, you could run this all. It would, okay, so it would be really cool to have USB or Phantom XLR uh, option. You, like you could pick oh in one mic your, in one mic. Yeah, so you pick what you want. If you want it to be like studio, plug your XLR in. But if you want to take it on the go and you just have your laptop, you know, do that. I think we should do this. Yeah, we'll have to have a uh, a session of just like coming up with like the board idea. Hey, you know, uh, like when we did my um, 
my my micro tracer and we did the the code thing the live stream of the code thing let's live stream uh, a design of this yeah that sounds good yeah that'd be a bunch of fun i'm writing that down so i do not forget we can talk about i in the it might be more than one live stream there's a bit to talk about but uh mainly the um mechanical design and the kind of like layout of how it all needs to work because one of the things i didn't pay attention to at all with the first one was the length of the ribbon was sort of fixed but the length of the magnets was just like whatever i could find yeah the thickness of the entire thing so there's a ratio of the the length of the channel that the ribbon sits in versus the thickness of everything and you want that ratio to be something decent because if it's off then you get this the, the the I can't remember exactly how it is, but the, uh, the the wavelength of certain frequencies doesn't vibrate the the, the ribbon properly. So it doesn't resonate. Yeah, we want to get that ratio correct. And I th- obviously there's probably a lot of wiggle room because we just threw one together and it worked. And it worked. <laughs> but let's let's actually try to get something decent. Cool. Yeah. Cool. All right, on to the RFO. Yeah. So I found a good one uh, this week that I'm a bit excited about. So the MIDI Association announces MIDI 2.0 dot 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 for prototyping. So what have they been doing for like the past 30 years? <laughs> Obviously MIDI 1.0. Yeah, but it's been done. MIDI, MIDI's been around for 80, since 83. Yeah, I think it was 83 is when MIDI was first uh, implemented. And so uh, at NAM 2019, which is happening January 24th through the 27th, uh, the MIDI Association is, which, uh, gosh, what's it called? MIDI something association, and it, it's MMA. And I totally think it's the mixed martial arts of electronics. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so they're announcing MIDI 2.0. Those transistors fighting op amps and microcontrollers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like rolling around on the ground until someone gives up. Yes. I probably offended somebody by saying that. <laughs> <laughs> what, MMA fighters? <laughs> oh, no, like UFC guys. Like, they're, they're UFC oh, guys. You know. They're not going to be listening to this podcast. No, probably not. No, man. If you, if you, you can watch whatever you want to watch, though. <laughs> okay, so MIDI, MIDI 2.0 is uh, the next logical, maybe not fully logical, uh, movement in the MIDI world. And the the reason why I'm kind of saying it that way is because like MIDI is sort of antiquated and not sort of, it is totally antiquated. It's slow. It's old. It's clunky. It doesn't have high resolution. It's basically a just eight N one codes that, you know, flow down whatever wire you're sending between two devices. And it's super great. It's super robust, but it's just like, you know, we could have a we could have a much bigger protocol, and I, and I think MIDI 2.0 is trying to become that. However, the thing that's I find really interesting is that MIDI 2.0 is promising to be 100% fully backwards compatible with MIDI 1.0, which means that it's going to be crippled by all the things that make MIDI 1.0 kind of rough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. I'm I'm really interested to see what is gonna come of this and how it can kind of like become something bigger because there's there's other audio style protocols or or actually technically this is a control protocol it's not an audio because you're not actually sending audio uh, it's a control protocol and MIDI 2.0 is is supposed to 
kind of like extend beyond the whole like keyboard or foot controller world and go more into like your computer dock control, uh, being able to access a lot of, you know, other codes and commands and things. It's supposed to also give you a greater resolution than 127 uh, mm. for, for everything. Steps. So the, the, the thing is, though, it's still supposed to run at the baud rate of 31,250, so it's kind of slow, uh, and it's still supposed to be able to handle uh, 8N1. So what, what I'm really interested is, like, is it going to have, like, a completely separate mode where it'll, like, upon startup, it'll ask, like, hey, are you ready to MIDI 2.0? And if so, it then, then like, starts blasting a bunch. Like, because that would be kind of cool. Oh, like, it has basically a little handshake at the beginning? Yeah, if, if yeah, something, yeah, yeah. if something like, waves back, it's like, all right, let's, let's tango. And then it just starts ripping, like, actual data, you know? Uh, that would be, that would be pretty cool. So I, you can actually get information on the, the new protocol if you go to, gosh, uh, it's escaping me. It's the, it's like the official MIDI website. You can sign up and uh, make a, you know, register to get information and you have to tell them like, Oh, I'm a hobbyist or I'm a designer or whatever. And, and they have some cryptic PDFs about like what's happening. And, and the whole thing is they're not releasing the standard. What they're saying is they're entering prototyping phase, which means they're gathering a bunch of information. Everyone's kind of starting to begin to argue like, and agree. Yeah, on yeah like here's a white paper on like what we think the standard should be. Exactly. Exactly. So none of this means that anything is set in stone. They're just beginning the process. I'm sure it's going to take a very long time because everyone out there is going to want to, you know, put their two cents into it. And, and the big guys like Roland and all those guys are going to say like, this better work with all of our, you know, current offerings stuff, and the yeah. last 30 years of offerings. <laughs> well, that's the thing is like, oh, I don't want to find that gray beard that designed this device 30 years ago to get him to implement something, make it work on 2.0. Exactly. Ex yeah. yeah. And, and MIDI 1.0 tried very hard to allow for expandability because it has like predefined set codes for most of its stuff, but it also allowed for banks of codes that were uh, user definable or they were definable by, you know, whatever designer was out there. So, you know, Roland might have their own specific code at, you know, whatever address they have. And, you know, it allowed for that, but MIDI 2.0 seems to be more focusing in that realm where it's like, okay, we're going to give everyone their own codes and it, and we're in, we're finally in an age where all of our stuff can actually talk and not have to have standardized codes. It can ask if this code is, is good or not, you know? Yeah, actually, I'm looking at the it's midi.org. Ah, um, there, well, there, I should have guessed. And uh, some on on their how 2.0 is going to be backwards compatible, and yeah, basically they have something called MIDI cap capability inquiry. Yeah, MIDI CI. Yeah. yeah, and so it goes and talks to the device, and it's like if either the device says no, I can't do that, or just straight up doesn't respond because it doesn't know what's going on. Right, it, your host. MIDI controller just does 1.0. Yeah, it pulls the crutches out and it starts going real slow. Yes. So, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I hope they implement that. Obviously, this is all prototyping. It, you know, it, I'm sure there's there's a general amount of politics that go behind this kind of stuff. So, you know, whoever complains the most, it, they, it might not even, that might not even work. But it would be really cool to see that. Like, you know, if if two devices are like, hey, we can do this, let's do it. And then you got 
all kinds of cool stuff. Cause then you, you can really like do like true automation via MIDI through your computer, have your computer like talking to multiple devices, controlling all kinds of aspects on them. Like talk about like some really cool power there. Whereas like with old MIDI, it was like, well, good luck. You'd probably have to program a whole bunch of stuff and it's going to be not fast enough to automate live. You know, Mm -hmm. that's why a lot of, a lot of stuff has like custom protocols over USB but those don't really work because everyone has their own custom like protocols and drivers and things like, and then it gets like what happens one year later when that product is obsolete. Well, they come up with a new product with its own USB driver and its own protocol. And it, I don't know, it doesn't work, work too well. So I'm, I'm rooting for this. I hope it'll turn out pretty well. Well, it sounds like uh, MIDI has stood the test of time because people still use it Yep, and it's still very popular and, it hasn't really changed in 30 years. And so, yeah, having a big change up like this, and hopefully they do a good a good job with 2.0 so it lasts another X years. Well, it, years. And, and in my realm, in the synth realm, I would love to see synthesizers start using MIDI 2.0 such that you can go MIDI to voltage, and then you can take this MIDI 2.0 and use it to control your entire synthesizer rack and do it at high speed so you can you know instead of just like sending a command that's like play keyboard g5 you know like that's old midi now it can be like i'm sending you all the codes to play this and modulate it this way and do it that way and i'm talking to eight of you guys at the same time Mm -hmm. that would be really cool that would be cool yeah okay so the next topic is solder tension or solder surface tension and why you should care. <laughs> solder tension uh, sounds like a like a nerdy engineering metal band. A solder tension? Yes, solder tension. <laughs> the liquid solder tension experiment. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's great. Um, so the current source, aka Derek, uh, he released a really cool video of basically like what is surface tension and why is it important with and for a PCB assembly. Uh, it saves your butt half the time. <laughs> yeah, it does save your butt half the time. Um, Derek was on the MEP episode 103, so go check out that episode. But that's a really cool video, and Derek does a really good job like explaining what surface tension is and how it actually works. And at the very end of it, he has a example of how changing a part footprint can affect how it reflows oh wow that's really good yeah uh, so i'm i'm kind of breezing through the video right now so it does different different footprints and uh it shows at the very end yeah he's talking about like a complicated module footprint where his oh it's like an esp yeah how the i think it's a silicon labs part okay but it's it's how the stock footprint from the manufacturer actually doesn't work really well in mass manufacturing. Ah, neat. Basically, you need to move some tra- uh, some um, uh, some of the pads around to get better surface tension action, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. So you know this this kind of harkens back to our our chat that we had with um, Embedded FM, where they were like. Why wouldn't you just download somebody's library and just use it? It works, right? Like, well, here's a great example as to like, maybe not, you know? Yeah. Even well, even the manufacturer's recommended footprint 
wasn't good. Like that footprint would be fine probably for hand soldering, but for automated assembly, you need to move these pads more away to prevent the part from shifting under reflow. Right, right, right. Well, and and at the same time, like part shifting under reflow, that's what I was meaning when I said it saves your bacon earlier. Like, yeah. <laughs> In this case, it ruins your bacon. Yeah. It, yeah, when when you're it's yeah when you're hand soldering and you're placing components, uh, don't spend all of your time trying to get the component perfectly aligned before you've flowed the paste. Yeah, that is really cool. I'm okay. I'm totally gonna have to watch that. Yep. Okay. That well, I, just one quick thing. They should they should play that in college. This video should be oh, yeah. taught in college. Guaranteed. Yep. Okay. Cool. Next. A choice of grippers helps dual arm robot pick up objects faster than ever. And this is the new DexNet 4.0 multi-tool picking robot. Um, It says dual arm and you're like, oh yeah, it totally makes sense. Humans have two arms. Um, But you got to think this is more like a, it's got two different tools. So it's got a, it's got a a grabber and then it's got a little suction cup to pick up stuff. Um, the problem with picking robots has always been weird shaped objects uh, and robots aren't very good at computers aren't very good at figuring out that kind of problem. Humans, we just know, oh, I know how to pick up that soda can by just kind of looking at it and your hand just kind of grabs it like it's some some cerebral thing going in our brain to make that work and computers just can't do that. Um like even this is like the best picking robot ever and it can only do about 300 picks an hour at 95% success rate whereas a human does double that at 100% unless unless they're tired <laughs> yeah unless they're tired that's one thing the robot won't get tired yeah it'll just keep going it just keeps going um but the cool thing is how they're getting this high percentage of success rate it's not just you know a suction cup and a and a grabber it's it's learning things by simulation so it looks at everything and it has a 3d camera i guess it does depth mapping mm-hmm. and scans the objects to figure out how it's basically it takes one of its tools and simulation and tries to pick it up you know a thousand times or a hundred thousand times and then goes okay this is probably the best way to pick it up and then goes and picks it up um and they're doing weird things with the physics model, though, in those simulations because your 3D sensing isn't perfect because there's some fluctuation of error there. And even just like driving the arms, you're going to have overshoot and undershoot with your mechanisms and stuff. And so they're actually adding a little bit of randomness to the physics. What? To basically mask up sensor defects. <laughs> they're adding fuzziness to it. Yeah, they're actually adding a little bit of fuzz, and it kind of masks the physics problem. <laughs> that's funny. Um, so I think it's real. That's a really cool idea. Um, I like to see. I, I I bet you like Amazon is gonna buy this thing. Amazon's gonna buy this company. Probably. <laughs> 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 I I like the, they they broke things out into grabbing difficulty levels like yeah, how yeah. hard it is and i love it because like in the hardest difficulty level difficulty level four there's one of those 
um, honey bears. You know, like the the yeah. bear that's full of honey. <laughs> and that's a that's a level four difficulty. Yep. And then also, it's like a uh, action figure in a plastic box. Yeah, I think it's a Hulk Hogan or something like that. Actually, you know, I bet you the, these things are all in difficulty four, not necessarily because of their shape, but because of the, what it has to see. That's actually one of the things is uh, surfaces that are easily manipulable under pressure or stuff that's transparent, the system doesn't work too well on. Well, they have a loofah and they have a glove. Those are both probably awful to look at, you know, yeah. and, and, and for a camera to... Up. Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to do edge detection on a loop, <laughs> like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. That's cool, though. Yeah, it's a cool little little uh, robot. Going on to the next one, the basics of USB battery charging, a survival guide by Maxim. Um, I'm only going to cover just a couple of little things in here. Um, this is a really cool app note if you haven't done any kind of lithium battery charging over USB. And actually, they go into uh, nickel metal batteries too. Um, it's a little bit outdated on the USB end because as it, it does cover USB 3.0, but doesn't cover the Type-C connector or uh, anything past battery charging specification 1.1. It's like 2.0 now. Uh, 1.1 was like the last one before Type-C came around. Um, but yeah, so if you're doing a USB 2.0 device, this is like all the app. This is like the Bible for like doing lithium battery charging. That's great. Yeah, because that's super prevalent. Yeah. I'm hoping either I haven't found it yet or they haven't done one yet for battery charging 2.0. So that would be nice. Because that's like getting your 100 watts of power. Yeah, it's, that's the serious guy. <laughs> and then USB, yeah, USB 3.0, they have like one paragraph on that. <laughs> it's like <Yeah>. three sentences. <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> this is kind of new when this came out. Yeah. What, what, what do you, does the, is there a date on this? Um, I don't see it. Okay. But no, that's great. Yeah. This is like four or five pages and plenty of December 9th, 2010. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is, this, uh, it is this old, is but it, it covers but... any kind of USB 2.0 charging for lithium batteries. This covers all of it. Yeah. And this is still good. Yeah. This is a good, good, uh, app note here. Filled with a bunch of diagrams with Maxim parts in it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> I bet you half of these are obsolete now. Yeah, but there's probably some better version of it. Probably. Know. Cool. So uh, there's uh, one more quick topic that uh, is a fun topic to uh, bring up. Uh, so over the weekend, Mauser uh, did a slight change to their website, and I wouldn't be surprised if a handful, if not many of you, have uh, experienced this also. So Mauser for a while had a kind of a static website. They didn't really make much changes, but they did a handful of graphical updates uh, to things. And so I came in uh, to work on Monday, and I was having to look for some parts. I was like, oh, Mauser kind of looks like DigiKey now. Uh, so, like, they, their old site and 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 what i'm talking about with this is their like filtering tool like when you go to passives like resistors or something like that and up at the top it has all the the banks of information where it's like uh, select your resistance select your tolerance your package blah 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 all that stuff it used to just be all a string of boxes that had you know all of the stuff you wanted and it still is but now they added a whole bunch of 
graphics to it effectively. So it looks more slick, but it's just spaced out. Yeah. The, the question is, is it better? Um, no. Hmm. <laughs> so I'm on, I'm on mauser.com slash passive components slash resistors. And so I see, and I'm on a 4k monitor. So everything's really wide. I see resistance and I have to, I actually have to scroll over to select the case code. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that, that really stood out about this whole graphical change is the fact that everything is kind of bigger now. They made all the selection boxes larger. And uh, even when you actually drill down and you see a list of the components you want, all the list of components are, are much wider, not wider, I'm sorry, taller now. And, and actually, you know, what's, what's kind of interesting is it sort of reminds me a little bit of the Macrofab bomb. The Macrofab bomb looks kind of similar to this. So maybe Maz are stealing from you guys. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the Macrofab bomb is there to show you your parts. It's not there to, for you to search for parts. So there's a very different f uh, intent behind each one of the bombs. And the thing that kind of is grinding my gears right now is it feels like they made it a lot more difficult to quickly get to your part because now that everything is so much bigger i have to scroll around to get to the package uh you and know. you can't use your mouse wheel to scroll over there exactly so previously i didn't have to do much sliding across the screen like i could pick my my tolerance my resistance and my package code which that's like the first things that I drill to. And I could do that all just from the page that I was at. Now I'm not capable of doing that. I have to use their little like slidey bar and slide over to all my stuff. It's like, wh why? Why was this necessary? And, and like I said, it sort of feels like DigiKey now because DigiKey was always bigger and clunkier in my opinion than Mauser. Yeah, and DigiKey used to have this kind of problem but they fixed it recently. They had this like checkbox slider thing that's called filter options. And they have stacked and scrolling mode. Guess what mode you always use? Stacked. Because you can see everything. Yeah, it, it doesn't stack do it all vertically. Yeah, it will. It, it stacks all these filters up into what will fit on your screen. Yeah, w which great. You know, someone was actually thinking about like the the experience on there and it kind of sucks because like now Mauser's made the experience harder and mm -hmm. it's not I shouldn't say harder it's not like it's any more difficult in terms of like I can still get to the thing I want I just have to do it in more clicks now whereas previously there was nothing wrong with the graphics it all worked out fine and I was could do it I you know I, I don't want to sound like an old an old man being like, ah, I want my stuff back. But it's at the same time, it's like, wh why? Like, what was wrong with it? Like what executive came into Mauser and is like, I'm going to do a good job and change all this stuff up. You know, it's like, what? It, no, go back. Cause this is the thing is it looks slick. Yeah. It look, yeah like sure. I really like how they're doing the colors and stuff, but because of this scrolling thing, it feels like, it's unfinished. Yeah, it's just, it's clunkier. They just added clunk, but made edge. You know, they made it slick. It's like an Apple device now. I, you know, I, shoot. 
if it was an Apple device, you they'd give you one resistor. That's all. Like you can you can pick one. That's it, and it costs a thousand dollars. But <laughs> but no no like I wish there was a button that was like Mauser Classic. Just I mean it's Tuesday. It's been out for a day and a half, and I already want a Mauser Classic button. <laughs> kind of like the Reddit Reddit Classic. Yeah yeah. There's a there's so many threads on Reddit that talk about like how the mobile app is like incredibly superior to the website now. Yeah. Well, the good thing is Reddit still has the classic. You just click classic and you get the classic stuff. Right. Now, don't look at Mauser's mobile on a desktop computer. I bet you DigiKeys is just as bad. Do they have a option to flip over to that? No, they don't. Also, you know what's funny? Uh, it used it's to definitely be like, you're looking at it and you're like, this is totally optimized for like vertical scrolling. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. But uh, the, like, I'm not griping about this. I think it's funny. It, it, you, I mean, last week, if you went to the products page on Mauser, you go to Mauser and you click on products, you, it shows everything categorized like circuit protection, connectors, electromechanical. It used to have a picture of like, uh, uh, next to passives, it just showed a capacitor. Next to connectors, it showed some kind of connector, and then they ditched all those. So now, when you go to products, it's just text, which was like, why'd you get rid of the picture? The picture's like the first, like, it, it show, gives you like a quick overview of that entire genre of components that you're looking at, you know? <laughs> now, but they do have pictures in... The uh, when you actually drill down one pass, like if you go to passive components, yeah, there's a visual representation of the parts. Now, you click, like, if you go types of resistors, you can do list or visual, which oh, I kind of like. Okay, yeah, that, I, I see that now. I'm looking at th- that's cool. Oh, wow, wait, you wait, you can search based off of data sheets. That's weird. Oh, look at that, or search, <laughs> search off of images. Huh? How do you? How does this data sheet work? I don't know. This is. Oh, it whoa. has a n- part number in data sheet. What's that mean? Go uh, go to the data sheets and then click list, and it just shows like lists and lists of data sheets. That's interesting. I'm gonna have to play around with that. That looks really interesting. Yeah. Oh, I think this is if like if you knew what you really wanted. Yeah. Like, if you wanted to stick with the single family, this is the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, I see. that. That's that's convenient. That's nice. I like that. If if you know where you, you want to be, you don't have to, like, backdoor it by searching for a specific component and then finding that data sheet, mm-hmm. like the global data sheet. That's, that's kind of nice. Now, I don't think the image result searching for passive components is all that useful. I just found a really cool looking part. So, okay, I, I also the mouse wheel, it it does work for scrolling left and right, but only if you click in the right area. Oh, on that filter? Well, but not entirely on that filter, in the right area within the filter. Like there's there's a gray box that you have to be within to be able to ah why? <laughs> Skill mousing, man. Yeah, like I don't know. Where'd my mouser go? <laughs> All right. I guess that's our rant. Yeah, that, I think that would be the end of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. Take it easy, everyone.
See you later. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, topic, or interface you want to complain about, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at AnalogENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest MEP episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen, as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.